here because our speakers are going to sit here in dialogue style for a few, uh, and make their presentation, but then really engage you in conversation about their vision. We already had a small little gathering at, uh, uh, and uh, just as a warm-up, and it was really uh, spectacular. So again, come up close to the front and come get settled in, and I'll introduce our speakers. I'm Rabbi Jonathan Singer. I'm one of the uh, senior rabbis here at Emmanuel, and I work with a wonderful group uh, that hasn't had a meeting in a while, but will be soon, the Israel Action Committee, that works to bring Israel interest and dialogue to our community, and that really works to show to the larger Jewish community that we have to be a big tent when it comes to something as important as the state of Israel, to me the most important thing in our Jewish experience, in our lifetime, to have this come into being and be vibrant, that we have to be Jews and be able to talk with each other the same way a Talmudic page has different perspectives. And so it's very important for us as the Israel Action Committee to bring people from left, right, and center to talk about issues, to also just celebrate Israel, to not just always talk about what's wrong, but also just celebrate what's right and the, and the joy of being connected to that state and also to lead trips. I'll, I'll uh, put a little Hasbara there. I'm leading a trip at the end of June for about 10 days. We'll be meeting with people from uh, different aspects of leadership and just enjoying the country and uh, think about going with me. There'll be an information session uh, in January. But we are thrilled. We have the chance to um, have these two folks come to speak to us. Liat Schlesinger is the executive director of this organization called MOLAD. And she'll tell you about what MOLAD means. But, you know, we're taught that uh, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all other forms of government. And MOLAD is devoted to working for democracy in Eretz Yisrael, to making sure that there's true engagement and democracy. Do we need to work on that in this country? It's something you never have to stop working on. You always have to be protecting this most fragile of institutions. And so she's uh, just a fantastic spokesperson for this organization, and we're honored to have you here and your stop along the way in this country. And she brings with her Ami Ayalon, who is famous for having been uh, the director of the Shin Bet, for having been in the Israeli Navy for 30 years, for being a scholar and teacher and, and, a, and one who discusses peace. Uh, what film were you in, Ami? What film were you in? The Gatekeepers, right? Yeah, it's well known. They almost won, almost won at the Oscar. <laughs> uh, so to have someone of his credentials come and engage us as well, uh, it really is just, um, just incredible. I have to be frank, it would not have happened as a, without uh, Rabbi Dan Bridge. Is, Rabbi, where are you? Here he is. He's my colleague from Seattle um, and is just an incredible leader. And he said, you've got to check out these guys and have the opportunity to have them here. So we love that bridge from Seattle to uh, San Francisco. Uh, and Rabbi Andy Strauss, where are you? Uh, if you could stand up. And he just moved back uh, to the community. He is uh, associate director. Is that right? What's your title? 
uh, Deputy Director of, of J Street, and we really appreciate J Street's participation uh, in the evening. So let's have this dialogue about democracy, about Israel's direction, uh, and, and uh, its effect on all of us. Will you please give them a hand, everybody? Okay, thank you very much uh, for uh, hosting us. And um, since we started our uh, meeting or uh, conversation or debate uh, an hour ago, so uh, I'll start from the very beginning uh, by, uh, by saying something very, very simple, uh, almost obvious. And not, not many people in America understand that uh, most Israelis, not many people in Israel understand, that most Israelis are wants to state. Uh, most Israelis prefer two-state solution, what we call two states for two people, uh, because uh, I think that uh, most Israelis understand that the only way to see Israel um, as a Jewish democratic and safer place is by creating a reality of two states. So uh, why it doesn't happen? Uh, this is the question that uh, we would like to, um, to discuss today. And of course, uh, to try to give an answer and uh, to see what can we do in order to see it happening. Uh, if you will ask me uh, to say something about the Israeli society, I think that the definition of the Israeli society today is a confused society. Most Israelis are confused. Um, they are confused because they want something, they feel that they, we are trying to do everything and it doesn't happening. Uh, and many of us are blaming Palestinians, uh, others are blaming our leaders. Uh, I, I want to, to try to give another perspective of what happened during the last 55, 25 or 30 years and, and why we do not see it happening. I'll start by saying that uh, after the collapse of Camp David, uh, a friend of mine told me that uh, it didn't work because the people who were there tried to put past, present, and future in the same room at the same time, and everything exploded. You cannot do it. I have to be very honest, I did not understand uh, what, what he's saying. I did not understand the concept of why something should explode if you bring past, present, and future. But I, I think that I understand it now. And um, since it took me about 20 years to understand it, uh, I'll try to explain uh, what happened to me during these 20 years, uh, I'll start by saying that uh, a, a very wise person um, somewhere in the, 
I think it was uh, 1939, uh, said, whoever controls the past controls the future, but whoever controls the present controls the past. Um, he said it in order to explain the concept of 1984, a book that he wrote in 1939, uh, George Orwell. It is not very optimistic view, but it explains the correlation or the connection or the tension between the past, the present, and, uh, and the future once we are trying to create a different, in our case, a better future. In a way, what we are dealing with is uh, with a very, very simple question. What is our story? What is our narrative? Uh, when, when we say what is our narrative, uh, in a way we are asking three questions. Uh, what is our past, where we came from, and, and why we are here, in my case, in Israel, and not in a different place. The present, why we behave the way we do, because many people who see us from outside, from a different planet, probably for America, uh, might think that our behavior is is strange. Not everybody understand the Israeli behavior. And the future. Do we see in the story that we are telling ourselves or our children a better future? Now, I want to tell you a story about myself because in a way I feel that the way I understand um, the past, the present, and the future uh, of Israel is through my own eyes. Um, don't bother, it will not be too long. My parents came during the 30s from Europe. Uh, my father came as illegal immigrant and my mother as a child to study in Jerusalem. And um, I, I didn't speak with them about it, but I think that the idea that brought them to Israel was um, a kind of idealistic idea. To build a safe home for Jewish people, they felt that the Jewish people is in a great danger. All their parents, all their families stayed in Europe and uh, were assassinated during the Holocaust. I have only two hands, but I'll do my best, okay. And uh, uh, by the way, do you hear me or not? Ah, now, okay, very good. So um, the concept or the future state that they portrayed was a very simple concept. We are going to build a state in every place in the land of Israel in which we shall build a settlement, work the land, and defend ourselves. This will be the way that we shall build the state with this, and, and the borders will be shaped by the location of our settlements. So it was a kind of a Zionism of settlements and security. I was born in the Jordan Valley and during all my childhood, Syrians used to shoot on our settlements, our kibbutz, uh, we spend 
weeks in shelters. Uh, what we see in Gaza or around Gaza today is not a new phenomena for Israelis. I joined the Navy, like many other friends, and in 67, nothing changed this concept of Zionism. I'm not a settler only because I was on the security side of this concept. I stayed in the Navy. Uh, in my case, in the Naval Commando, uh, Navy SEALs in America. But my friends from my kibbutz, they went to create settlements uh, in the Jordan Valley, in Sinai, on the Golan Heights. And we felt like liberators. We liberated these places that our parents dreamed of and told us. My mother, she came as a child to study in Jerusalem. And every weekend, she used to walk from her school in Ramat Rachel to the Wailing Wall or to Kever Rachel, which is the thumb of, of Rachel. Uh, every month, they used to drive to Hebron. So these places were the places that our parents dream of. It took me 20 years, only in 1988. I understood it was, I still remember the day, it was in, in a refugee camp in Shati, in Gaza. Um, I was attacked by Palestinian youngsters. And, and this was a moment in which I understood that for these young Palestinians, I am not a liberator. It was the first time when I understood that in places that we liberated, millions of people are living and they feel occupied. They feel conquered. They do not feel liberated. Uh, this was the moment, it took me 20 years, since 67, 68, until 87, 88, the beginning of the Intifada, December 87, in my case, February 88. And this was the moment that I understood that I have to choose between ownership of places, of land in Israel, and liberal human values that my parents believed in. So the narrative of my parents that was based on security and settlements brought us to a dead end. This narrative that enabled us to create the state of Israel along the lines of 67 bring us today to an endless war, bring us today to give up on our identity. Because if we shall go on fighting, and if we shall win this war, and our eastern border will be on the Jordan, Israel will not be a Zionist state. It will not be a Jewish democracy. If we are not majority in our state, we do not have the power, we do not have the right to dictate the calendar, the language, the culture, the way we celebrate our holidays, 
or to tell the story of what, what happened here during the last 5,000 years, 3,000 years, or even the one last 100 or, or 20 years. There are two different narratives. During the 90s, I think that all of us, including myself, um, we understood the dilemma, but we are looking for a way to change the course, to create a new narrative. And we didn't do it. In my personal case, I still did not understand how strong is the past and how the past shape our present and our future. I remember I met Professor Nuseiba. He was, he is a good Palestinian friend and, uh, and we created a kind of peace initiative and we traveled all around the world, including America, trying to get signatures. Finally, we got about 475,000 signatures of Israelis and Palestinians supporting our initiative. But the whole concept was, since we can agree on the future, now all what we have to do is to present a great future. And since we understand that the past will bring us to disagreement, I cannot agree on the past. For him, what I see as the war of independence, the moment that enabled us to create our statehood, for him it's a Nagba. It's his Holocaust, whatever they call it. We shall never be able to agree on this. So we decided not to discuss the past, to change the future, and to leave the past to future generations. And it didn't work. It didn't work because, yes, we got a lot of support, but we did not remove even one settler. So we are sending to ourselves during the whole 90s until today a double message. On one hand, we are looking for a new future to states. On the other hand, we are going on building more settlements, defending more settlers, etc., etc. So 90s uh, were the time of confusion. We created two conflicting narratives. If you will ask Israelis, they will tell you, uh, we gave them everything, all what we wanted was security, and they responded in violence and intifada. And we are right. This is exactly what happened. But if you will ask the Palestinians, they will give you a totally different narrative, and the tragedy is that they are right as well. As they will tell you, all what we wanted was to see the end of occupation, to get our freedom. And all what we saw were more settlements, more check roadblocks, and more military forces. We never saw the Palestinian narrative. They never saw the Israeli narrative. Only from a different planet, you can see both narratives. Now, to sum up, or to, in a bottom line, during the 90s, 
until today, two minorities led the region. About 15% of Palestinians who do not believe in two states and 50% of Israelis who oppose the concept of two states, both of them, they led our policy and they shaped our present. Now, what we have to do is to tell another story, a different story, a new story that enable us to distinct between the kibbutz, the settlements of my parents, and the settlements of my friends. If we cannot do it, we shall never be able to create a different present. Now we have to understand that the narrative of my parents enabled us to create a state along the lines of 67. Now, in a way, we won this war. It was a war that started somewhere in the end of the 19th century when the first Zionist settlers or pioneers came to Israel or Palestine. And we won this war somewhere between 1988 and 2002. We won this war because the Arab world accepted Israel along the line of 67. The first time Palestinians accepted it was in 88 when they recognized international decisions or Security Council resolutions, 242-338 and 181, which is a Jewish state and an Arab state. They accepted all of it. And the Arab League decision in 202 that accepted the state of Israel as a legitimate member state in the region. But the problem is that somebody forgot to tell us that we won this war. And during the 90s, late 80s and 90s, this narrative was distorted by religious fundamentalism and messianic ideas. Until then, it was part of our security concept. But since the moment that Arab states and Arab world accepted us as a state, it became a religious concept. And the problem is today that in order to change the narrative, we have to understand what everybody who used to serve in the military understands. That today, Settlements are not a security asset. It is a liability. The settlements, in a way, is the origin, the source of violence and terror. If we shall not change the narrative, we are leading Israel to 19... 84, we are destroying our democratic community as a society, and we are endangering 
Israel from the security point of view. Now, the new narrative should bring us back to the Declaration of Independence. It should be based, our right to create a state should be based on self-determination. It should be based on our historical connection, not our historical ownership, our historical connection to the land of Israel. And it should be, con it should be based on the decision of the international community. Everything is written in the Declaration of Independence. We just have to go and to read it. Yes, it is ours, but it is not only ours. And we have to, in order to see Israel as a Jewish democracy, we have to divide the land between a Jewish state and a Palestinian state, not because we owe something to the Palestinians. We owe it to ourselves. Otherwise, Israel will not be the state of the Jewish people. We have to distinct between settlements and security, and by creating the narrative that starts with our right based not on the promise of God, but on the idea of right determination, we can distinct between all what we did until we built this state along the lines of 67 and what my friends did after 67. It is very important to come here and to tell you this story because, as I said before, in many cases, we are living too close and we do not see ourselves the way you can see and the way you should tell us what you see. A person who sees us from outside, from a different planet, from America, can come to tell us that in a way what he sees is that we are fighting two wars on the same time. One war is a just war, is to defend the state of Israel along the lines of 67 against every enemy, state or organization, who is trying to destroy it. This is a just war. It is supported by most of the world. 90% of the world supports this war. But in addition, on the same time, we are fighting another war, a second war, which is to build more settlements, to expand our eastern border, and to deny the option of creating a Palestinian state alongside Israel. This is not a just war. It is not supported by the international community. And we Israelis do not see it. If you will ask the average Israeli, he will say, all the world is against us, and we are fighting only one war. The problem is not a theoretical problem. We are sending our youngsters to fight. Many of them 
do not come back. And we owe them an honest answer because we are sending them to a war that we should not win. It will be a disaster if we shall win the second war. If we shall win the second war, our border will be on the Jordan and Israel will not be a Zionist state. We will not be majority. We shall have to choose between the South African model or the Syrian model. But it will not be a Jewish democracy. Now let me finish by saying that uh, finally, with all my history, I'm an old sailor. And I know sailors are not very clever. But there is a great advantage because our wisdom is very simple. Everybody can understand. Sailors used to say that a captain who does not know where he wants to sail, there is no wind on earth that will bring him there. Uh, it's true not only at sea. If we do not know who Israel is, or we Jews because the Israel concept, the Israel statehood is a very, very strange concept. Israel is the only state on earth that belongs to people who are not its citizens. Many of you. So in order to preserve this concept, we have to know exactly where we are sailing. Because if we will not know, we shall never be there. In order to be there, we have to reinvent, reinvent Zionism. We have to tell a new story. Where we came from, what is our right to create a state, and very important, where exactly are we heading? We owe it, in my case, to my children and my grandchildren, but we owe it to the young leadership, people like Liat and her friends, in order to be the next leaders of Israel. They deserve it. It is their time. We have with them to create the new narrative and to transform, to transform the narrative into a new political language and to remind ourselves that Zionism is based on two very simple concepts, optimism and free choice. It is in our hands. Thank you very much. Working? Yes? Thank you, Ami. Um, I'm very happy on, on this tour, I have to say. I, I'll, I'll start by saying um, just a little bit about why we came here. When um, we, um, uh, we merged our two organizations. So MOLAD is a, is a think tank and Blue and White Future is a think tank. I'm very happy to have Ami 
on my team now. Um, I know it's not time for, it's not very popular to have responsible leadership in these days, but uh, I'm sure if you follow uh, then uh, what's happening in Israel, then um, it's like water in the desert. Um, Ami's voice is inspirational to a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of Israelis and he's one of the bravest and and most responsible and inspirational uh, leaders in Israel um, not just because of what he's done and the service that he gave to Israel because it is simply by saying what he thinks is best for the country not what's popular um, just what's best what he believes is best by by his experience and this is something that we find rare today. Um, so I'll share a little bit about, um, we talk about narratives and I'll try to explain from the perspective of what's going on on the ground in Israeli politics and what do we do. So when Ami talked about a story or a narrative, so stories unite us, right? They give us a sense of meaning. Stories can also divide us. So I'll try and give an example. Make America Great Again, that's a story. We know where it came from, we know, we know what it means, uh, we know who the rival is, we know it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, Israel is a small country surrounded by many enemies. That's a story. The future of Israel depends on the ability of the democratic, the progressive, the liberal community in Israel to tell a different story. A story that has hope, hope, that I won't need to send my very cute baby boy to an unjust war. Hope that we won't be sitting here, I don't know how many years from now, um, telling the horrifying stories from the one state Israel that looks like Syria. Hope that there is a, a, a different narrative um, that, that people are gonna be in charge in Israel, and they will be responsible, and they will care for the for the majority of Israelis. That we that that it is possible to hear different news from Israel, um, and this is the reason why we joined forces. Um, we merged our organizations uh, because we realized we don't have the privilege anymore um, to each and every one be in its own seats. We need to reorganize, we need to scale up our game, and we need to fight back. Because in order to save the amazing miracle that Israel is, progressives need to fight against the populist enemies that are threatening our democracy. Um, and this is what we've been doing. So I'll, I'll say very briefly, just to give you a concept of our work, we're a think tank. <laughs> We, are, um, we research and disseminate ideas and knowledge and information and we brief politicians and we work with opinion leaders and we work a lot with satire um, shows and TV and we generate ideas and a worldview of what it means to be a progressive Zionist today. What is liberal Zionism? Um, these guys, Blue and White Future, are the only game in town when it comes to the two-state solution today in Israel. Um, I say that with guarantee. Um, Molad, we've been working on an area of issues. We have um, social economic issues. We, we, we work a lot on 
um, of, we, we investigate, um, we research the resource of funding and ideology of the religious right. We also work a lot of questions of Zionism. Uh, we have, we work, uh, our audience is, is the progressive, or the young generation. Uh, of, of Israelis, so um, I, you know, I stand here. My name is Liat, but I represent a movement of Israelis, of, of young Israelis. That I, I don't know if you know them. Oh, I, I'm, I'm. Most of the time, people ask me, "Are you being attacked in Israel?" And I was like, "I'm very popular in Israel. <laughs> I am." Our, my, our, our digital platform, it's called 61. We have a million and a half Israelis that, that read our materials. And they love it because it's proud, because it, it's not, it, we don't blur our messages. We give them facts and knowledge and information. Um, and they're hungry for it because they don't want to be told every day that they're traitors, that they're not patriotic, that they're not Jewish enough. No. They don't want that, and they don't want that to hear that from their leadership. So um, our, our ideas and research change reality, and it shifts narratives, and it gives people, I'm, 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 I mean, you guys know because you live in a very, you know, in a, here uh, politics is very professional. There's think tanks. You go to Washington, I'm jealous. There's so many institutions. Um, so you know what it means. I can tell you that in Israel, people on the right, uh, we followed the Kavanaugh story, right? Everyone, it, it, they didn't have to open the news. They knew what they thought about that judge. You, it, you wake up in the morning, you don't read anything. You know what you think about things. And this is the way think tanks and, and media organizations shape reality. And we're doing the same thing. We're just not as... <laughs> as many <laughs> as they are on the right. And I'll try to explain a little bit about the imbalance of, Israeli, of, of, of what's happening in Israeli politics today, and maybe offer some hope, I think. Um, so basically, what I, we've been seeing, and it's also in Israel, by the way, that people are giving up on Israel, that people think it's impossible, that all Israelis are right-wing, that people just, well, that Zionism is colonialism, that it's chauvinism, that it's racism, that people in Israel, people in Israel are just bigots, or that um, it's impossible, you know, it's this big ship, it's impossible to shift it on the other side, and we can't evacuate settlements anymore, and it's done, you know, it's done. Story's done. And, and I think that Molad, so Molad was, was formed in 2012 after the uh, social uprising. If you heard, it was on the streets and half a million of my, my friends on the streets. And then what happened after that? BB1 again. And that point, we formed Molad. I wasn't there to form it, but I've been there for four years. But, but we formed it because... The, 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 because we realize there's a gap. There's a gap and it's, okay, what's happening here? Because when we look at Israeli society, so we, we, did, you know, we did a lot of research and we showed that, just like in the United States, by the way, the Israeli public is not a reflection of its government. 23% um, of Israelis support Netanyahu. It's actually 16% when you look at the amount of voters that came out to vote from in the proportion of all voters. 
Let's go to different numbers. 56% of Israelis support a two-state with the Palestinians. Now, these numbers are from today. This is after 50 years of occupation, after, you know, the, the fact that the, 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 the solution doesn't, people don't even talk about that anymore. Being a leftist is like such a bad word. 56% of Israelis. 70% of Israelis support same-sex marriage. Yeah. 4%. 4%. By the way, 75% of Israelis have only visited the settlement once in their lives. The numbers is, the 56 is Jews and, and, and Arabs. Um, 70% support same-sex marriage. Now, when you look at numbers from other countries in the West, they're much lower. 68% um, support separation uh, of state and religion. I can go on and on, economics, there are many issues. But, so basically the, the government does not reflect the people in Israel. And we're like, okay, but why? So why don't these, we've won the battle of ideas. Why does it not, why, why does it not reflect um, in the politics? Why do people don't vote? For the, for, the, for the parties, and why don't you hear about any of this stuff? Why, don't, why is the message coming out of Israel is so dark and gloomy, and we only hear the really bad news? Um, so the reason for that is that currently, there is only one narrative coming out of Israel, and that is the narrative of the right. And democracies cannot survive when there is only one party or one worldview that is actually in the game. It is very easy to win in an empty field. It's easy. You have, there, today, actually, I don't know if you follow Israeli news, they're actually, like, they need to, they play amongst themselves because there is no opposition in Israel. And there is no narrative. And, and you know, when I try to give the example, I'm trying to, I'm telling people, imagine there is only Fox News. Every day, all day, for 20 years, in your homes, in people that don't support Fox and they don't support um, the right thing, but that everybody's watching for, I'm watching Fox News. And all my leaders on, like, like Fox, well, not all of them, but the majority, like Fox News. And so, unfortunately, why, and how did this came to play? Why? Why is this the situation in Israel? Because unfortunately, the right after the Rabin assassination, um, the right, the religious right, the nationalistic right in Israel, understood two things, understood what the left hasn't yet. And that is that you win politics with two things, ideas and institutions. And they have institutions and they've built that, those machines and we have issues. So if you wanna look at what's happening in Israeli politics, in Israeli societies, Look at the civil society mechanisms. Look at where power relies. Look at how, like, let's open the back door behind what you see in the news and see what's happening there and how things formulate. So what's happened on, on, in, in the, we call it the, la the last two decades. So after the Rabin assassination, um, when everyone went into shock, um, the left went into shock, and the right 
the, the, the religious right which was accused for the murder and which was in a very bad crisis because it was in the Oslo years when basically the, the Israeli public supported that and it was a threat to the settlement enterprise. Um, they understood that they need the, to reorganize and they did not change their mission but they changed their strategy and they changed their narrative and they changed their story. So instead of talking about what they talked about before, the Messiah or the settlements or the need to expand, they told a different story. And that is a story that they are Israel and everyone else is a traitor. So the courts are a, tra they're, they're a traitor and the, media is the, and, and the media is the enemy of the state and the left and the Arabs and they are all, all these traitors. And this is the story that it's been going on in Israel ever since. It's loyalty tests and it's scare tactics and it's who's financing you and who are you serving and it's conspiracies and it's populism. And it's been happening all over the world. It's not unique for Israel, but it started in Israel a lot before. Um, sure. So I'll just finish <laughs> by saying that there is a war on Israeli institutions and that they are trying to shape to their public, reshape what democracy looks like. And this war is enabled by donors in the US. And I'm talking about Sheldon Edelson and other organizations that are building these political mechanisms in Israel. And when, you, and when people, and if you talk to people and they give, um, and they are uh, giving up on Israel and they look at Israeli society, my message is that we are just not balanced. We are not balanced, the forces. There are many, many, many forces working in order to create this narrative that I talked about, and we need to mobilize other forces in order to create this different narrative. Um, yeah. What's the cost of Israel Leon? I don't know. A few millions. Ah, it's free. It's free. We also have Breitbart now. Um, hi. Um, I want to say that I'm an, a thousand percent in agreement with you folks, and I really admire you and thank you for what you're doing. The other side is I've been over 30 years all through the West Bank and in all the corners, and it's settled. It's a reality. So you're a think tank, and I guess my question to you is what's plan B?
Uh, let me tell you what is plan A. <laughs> plan A is uh, <coughs> to show uh, that we did not really try any plan because we were confused, etc., etc. And for the first time ever, we have to try plan A, which is, for example, uh, if, and the assumption is that we believe that Israel should be a Jewish democracy. Okay, because if we do not agree on this, so, okay. If we agree, so what we should do? Very simple. Prime Minister should come tomorrow morning, bring all the networks, telling them, listen, I want to see Israel as a Jewish democratic state, and this is why from tomorrow, I'm not building any building east of the security fence, because I know that it will not be the state of Israel. We do not have sovereignty claims beyond the fence. When Palestinians will come to negotiate, we shall negotiate on the exchange of territories, but it will be between the fence and the green line, so all of us know that 85% of the settlers will remain in the state of Israel. But we shall have to exchange, but it will take some time. Second, we owe the settlers. They are my friends, living there for the third generation. So every settler who lives east of the fence, if he wants, he will be compensated and he will come back to Israel. He deserves it. According to our polls, by the way, it's a think tank, 35% would do it immediately. So out of the 100 or 120,000, 35% would do it immediately. If you ask me, once it will be the government decisions, Decision, much more will do it. Now, just by doing, uh, by the way, the IDF will stay in order to secure all the settlers who will stay, but we are sending a message to three communities. First of all, to the settlers. Until now, we gave you the sense that you will shape the future borders of Israel. Now you understand that it will not be the state of Israel. When we shall negotiate with the Palestinians, we shall negotiate on your future. If they will accept that you will stay by getting Palestinian citizenship, I will do everything to enable it. But it will be depend on agreement between us and Palestinians. Second community, we are sending a clear message to the Palestinians. Come to negotiate. Security, I mean, resolu uh, 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 security, uh, uh, UN resolutions, uh, 242, two states. Uh, but if you will not come to negotiate, 
time is running against you. Because if you will not come to negotiate, when it is clear that we are doing it, because, not because, because we want to see Israel as a Jewish democ democracy, the world will see or will accept the fence in 10, 20, or 40 years as the east border of Israel. The same way, what will happen will be the same that happened with the shift between uh, 181, which is a division plan that was accepted in 47, to what happened in 67 when suddenly 67 borders became the borders only because we were the good guys and they refused to negotiate. And the third, we are sending a clear message to the international community. For the first time, we are not sending a double message. We are not building settlement saying that we want to see a Palestinian state. We are sending a clear message, no, it is our interest to see on the east side of the, of, of the fence a Palestinian state. Now, uh, I think that this is plan A. Unfortunately, I don't have plan B. I don't have the luxury of having plan B. If you will ask, I don't know, other friends, probably they will say, okay, we shall come to, uh, to uh, Seattle or San Francisco, I don't know. For me, it's not an option. So you gave a very good example of the captain that must know where the ship goes. I think the Israeli captain knows very well where he, where he wants to go. And I think that it's very hard to argue with him that he is successful. The whole world is now accepting grudgingly that Israel is where it is. The Arab world has already given up on the Palestinians. Nobody cares about them. Why should he do anything where he's so successful? How do you fight that narrative? Oh, the question, why should we do it when it is acceptable? No, I say, how do you fight that narrative? That is a powerful By narrative. By creating a different narrative. He is creating a different narrative. He. He is. No, no he is creating the only narrative. And, and it's very, and how do you argue with his success? That is the problem. Um, uh, until up last day, like not the day before today, there were 300 rockets that were launched at Israel in a day. The situation in Israel is not good. It is not safe. Um, the cultural war that is going on in Israel. You, you, I mean, you say Netanyahu is successful, but I mean, Netanyahu is, you know, the prime minister for <laughs> a very long time now, but that doesn't mean that he is successful. He, that, it means he doesn't have an opposition. If you look at, do the public support his views? No. Are Israelis, I mean, it is true that it is, like the economy is doing well and it's not, um, you know, like there's no buses exploding. But first of all, the moment that there is uh, tension, friction, you see Israelis immediately lose center. Um, there were, we were just talking about it, there were demonstrations against Netanyahu when he brought the ceasefire just now. Um, he is in constant battle with his um, 
with his uh, ministers. Um, the situation in Israel, you know, it, it, he is in up to here and in corruptions. He is successful because he has no rival. But it's not just about being, having a political rival. He has a very, very strong narrative. Um, and people do not see, well, half of the people don't see a majority. I, I don't see an alternative to that. But I have to tell you two things. First of all, in the last elections, it came, there are two blocks in Israel. So it, in the last elections, it was 24 to 30. That is not, you know, a reason for some of my friends, as they responded, is to like put pictures of their passports and say we're moving to a different country, which nobody did, by the way. This is one thing. The second thing is that we can admire um, what he's doing, and a lot of the people keep asking us, you know, what is Netanyahu? What does he want? Or why is he so successful? And everyone's asking us, and we can be spect spectators in this show. Or we can actually do something about it and try and 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 prepare for when things will be different. I think it's up in our it's really in our hands. We can just sit and, and look at things or we can say, no, what are we doing to mobilize and win elections? What happened in Israel is that it, there is a right and that the left has divided himself and in itself into center and left. And this is why Things are not mobilizing up in order to win elections. There are many, many speculations that if you will have four people together running in the, in the in the upcoming elections, they can win. I mean, things are nobody put. I mean, there were some people, but when Trump got reelect got elected, nobody saw that coming. Things change. We just have to be ready for when they occur. No, but the question was, uh, what should we do about the international community? I'm not going to do anything. By the way, I don't think that they support his narrative. 167 countries voted for Palestine in the UN. Palestine is not a state only because America vetoed. So the world do not support his narrative. But I couldn't care. I mean, I couldn't care less because we will succeed or will fail within the Israeli society. Nobody will save us from ourselves. Nobody. And all what we are speaking is about our ability to change the Israeli narratives in the eyes of the Israelis. And we believe that we shall succeed. Now, look, three years ago, uh, we had violence. It was not a real intifada. But we had some level of violence, mainly around Jerusalem. Now, during eight months, we ran three polls. It was the first time ever since the creation of the State of Israel that among Jews in Israel, 70% of the Jews were ready to give up all the Arab neighborhoods in Israel to Palestine. It was the first time ever, you know, when I ran, you know, uh, around with, with Stalin of Seba, uh, if you asked specifically about Jerusalem, we did not achieve 50%. As a package, yes, we achieved 80%, but Jerusalem specifically, it was the first time because when we face violence, 
we understand. Now, I do not want to see violence. I don't want to see it, but if I will tell you, it is not a surprise. Today, 78% of the Palestinians believe that we understand only the language of power, and this is their only way to see the end of occupation is by using violence, jihad, or violent intifada, whatever you call it. I want to believe that we shall do it without it, because I don't believe in violence, although I used violence during most of my life. I do believe that we have to create a different narrative because most Israelis today, this is what they really want to see. They do not see it. And this is why they are so confused, because they are threatened and our prime minister is creating fear. So how shall we do it? This is exactly what we are trying to explain. Uh, I had a question just going back to what you were saying about the two-state solution and how is 56% of Israelis, and you said it was something like 50% of Palestinians. I wanted to know how you're um, gathering those statistics from the other side because whereas I'm already for a two-state solution and I know plenty of Jews who are, I also have a lot of... Um, Iranian, Pakistani, Lebanese, and Palestinian Muslim friends. And while they love me and they accept me and they accept that I want a two-state solution, not a single one I've ever met has been for anything other than a one-state solution. No, so I'm sad about that, and I'm also excited to hear that statistic, but I don't understand where it's coming from because it's so different than my own experience. Well, if you would have okay, asked my uh, friends well, before the election who's going to win at the election, Meretz would be like winning everything. Well, your friends in Tel yes, Aviv. Exactly. Okay, great. Uh, well, uh, but this is the state of Tel Aviv. And I, I, I'm not sure about your friends, but uh, our polls comes from uh, a professional pollster. Uh, by the way, he finished his PhD in Columbia University. He is a good friend, uh, Dr. Halish Kaki. Uh, he runs uh, a, a center uh, in Ramallah. Uh, his samples are uh, a very professional samples. He is running polls. Uh, since, um, I think that since uh, 93, by the way, there is a joke, uh, if I have a moment, um, I started to read his polls when I was the director of the Israeli Shin Bet because I understood that this is the only way to try to predict the future wave of violence. Uh, Intifada is not organized or planned uh, wave of violence. It is a popular uprising. Nobody plans it. Now, how can you predict something that nobody is planning by polls because they feel the atmosphere? So um, I met him years later in Boston. We became very good friends. And I told him, look, I I'm not sure that you will like it, but you were our major source of intelligence information. And I said, and he said, look, uh, let, let me tell you a story. By the way, he is, he is the brother 
of Fatih Kaki, the founder of the Islamic, uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. I, I'm saying it because, uh, of course, he is totally on the other side. He believes in, in peace negotiations. Anyhow, he told me, uh, I finished my PhD in Columbia University. I came to the territory. Uh, I got a position in, uh, in a university uh, in Palestine. And, and I wanted to start to make polls. And uh, immediately, the, go the Israeli uh, governor called me and said, uh, you cannot do polls because it's a kind of incitement. He said, but uh, probably uh, you will take advantage. You will know exactly what is happening. Uh, he said, look, we know everything. Of course, we didn't know anything about the Intifada, but uh, we know everything. I said, okay, so what do you know? He said, it was in, in 86, something like this, one year before the Intifada. He said, today, uh, you know, Palestinians are fighting between supporters of Hussein and supporters of Arafat. So Halil told me, look, uh, I, I'm here for the, only for the last, I don't know, one month. And I can tell you that you are totally wrong. Nobody cares about Hussein anymore. And they are fighting between Hamas, Hamas, which is the new power, and the nationalists, the Fatah. So we didn't have any clue about it. Anyhow, his, uh, his polls are supported and are professional in the eyes of all, all the experts, so uh, are very reliable. Um, Even when I don't like the results, but well, well, I cannot do anything about it. Yeah. Okay. I, this question is for Ami. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, so like you, I'm a simple person as well, and I'm a little bit confused with what you said. You are proposing Sorry, a different uh, narrative um, and changing settlements and a message. Didn't we try something like this with Gaza 30 years ago? You are asking uh, whether what we did in Gaza do not contradict all what we are saying. Sort of. Okay. Uh, well, uh, the answer is no. Uh, do you want me to explain? Okay. Um, in, uh, <laughs> uh, what we did in Gaza uh, was totally wrong. I mean, this is exactly the example when you do something right, not in the right way. Uh, we are speaking on creating a political horizon. If you remember, I said, first of all, the Israeli prime minister will say, we do want to create a two-state horizon or two-state reality. We want to see a Palestinian state alongside Israel, but we shall not depend on Palestinian decisions. This is not what we did in Gaza. In Gaza, we left unilaterally. We did not negotiate it with anybody. We did not give them to understand, we did not give them to understand that there will be a Palestinian state. We even sent some contradicting messages uh, when Dubi uh, Weislas, um, the closest advisor to Sharon, was asked, he said, well, 
Palestine, Palestine, when Palestinians will look like, I don't know, Norwegians or, or Finland, something like this. So uh, in order to make sure that the settlers will understand that, okay, we have nothing against you in the West Bank. I, I'm saying it because I was close to Sharon at that time. And I went to his farm and I told him, you are doing a huge mistake. He said, you are telling me you are, you are running around with Professor Nuseiba. I said, yes, you are doing a mistake because you do not negotiate. So he said, what should I do? I said, call Abu Mazen to your farm. Give him the key to Gaza. Don't destroy any settlement. Tell him, this is yours. You want to bring refugees. You want to bring, I don't know, your, uh, your security forces. Palestinians will understand that you got it because you are the only Palestinian leader who opposed violence, who told Palestinians during the violent intifada that violence will bring us only humiliation and death. So instead, he did it the way that the Palestinians, if you will ask a Palestinian, he will tell you, Israelis did it only because of the second intifada and Hamas. And since they believe that we understand only the language of power, it is just a chapter in the recent history. They are saying they came to Madrid and then to Oslo only because of the first intifada. They went out of Lebanon because of the Hezbollah and the suicide bombers. And they left Gaza because of Hamas and the second intifada. It was totally wrong. We should do it totally different. And this is why it is very important how we have to create hope. Otherwise, we cannot expect security. Thank you. Uh, I want to ask the last question, and then we still have 20 minutes for people to mingle outside. Um, are you optimistic at all? about the Trump peace plan proposal, if it ever gets unveiled? And do you believe that, by, as opposed to offering the Palestinians everything in da Camp David, them turning it down and getting nothing, over the past year, Trump has taken away everything from the Palestinians to the fact that they have no other alternative, and will they accept his plan if it's ever unveiled? Look, um, unfortunately, I cannot predict the future. I'm trying, but um, I'm not very successful. I mean, it's, I, I don't know what will Trump offer the Palestinians. I do know that he lost their confidence. Now, I remember myself during 12 months trying to explain Ehud Barak something that he did not get. It is not the Wild West. It looks like. Ehud Barak, and if I understand your president, uh, the concept of negotiations is based on the idea that I will give him an offer that he cannot refuse. 
It's a wrong concept. We saw it. He can refuse. Because when he has nothing to lose, he can refuse to everything. This is exactly what happened during the Second Intifada. With all the respect, Ehud, in the eyes of the Palestinians, okay, I, I do not represent the Palestinians. But Ehud Barak offered the Palestinians Arafat. An offer that he could not accept. You have to understand, first of all, that Arafat cannot agree on the Temple Mountain. He do not have the, the right. The agreement on the Temple Mountain, it is in the hands of the King of Morocco, the King of Jordan, and the King of Saudi Arabia. It is not in the hands of Arafat or Abu Mazen. Second, the Palestinian narrative. Okay, we have to understand, not to agree. Palestinian narrative is that, okay, uh, this land was ours, it was taken from us, and now we accept an independent state in 23% of what was ours. This is the West Bank on Gaza, okay? Now, Ehud Barak came to him and he said, okay, what is mine is mine. Let's negotiate on your 23%. Okay, you will not get it. I will give you between 88 to 94% of what is yours. Arafat could not, could not accept it, especially not after the peace agreement with Egypt. Because, and the peace agreement with Jordan. That was exactly along the lines of what was the old borders. Now, I do not support Arafat, and I cannot tell you, by the way, that he could agree on another offer. But Ehud Barak did not give him everything. At least not in his eyes. Now, what was the problem that when you put an offer with the assumption that he cannot refuse, you do not have plan B. And this is exactly what happened. You do not negotiate. Okay, you put an offer and you shoot. And this is exactly what happened after Camp David. And this was exactly the reason for the Intifada. So I think that we have to understand that what we are offering is a different kind of process. I believe that I want to create hope for the Palestinians not because I join their national aspirations, only because I know, and this is what, something that I learned, I will have security only when they will have hope. That's it. Thank you. I'll, I'll leave it open here. Just 30 seconds. So. My name is Jordan Heimwitz. I'm the past president of the Israeli Action Committee. Uh, David Blumberg, the current president, was unable to make it tonight. I want to thank a couple people. First of all, our guests, thank you very much.
I also would like to thank Rabbi Singer, who left earlier. I mean, there's an awful lot of Reformed synagogues that have abandoned Israel here, and whether you're left, right, or center, one of the things we've tried to do is make this a safe space for everyone, and because if you don't engage in dialogue, we become ignorant and we become unaware of the other person's opinion. So if you're right or center, thanks for listening, and thank you for not protesting from the stands, which we've had, and thank you to everybody for supporting this effort, and we'll have cocktails outside, and thank you, Ariana, for making this event and making the temple great again. Um, if you Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we're about a month. Okay. You wait. You have no camera.